Hello and welcome to the JS Bach Files, episode number eight. I'm Terrence O'Grady and today we're going to take a look at three lesser known but still very interesting Bach concertos. We'll start with the so-called triple concerto, BWV 1044 in A minor for flute and violin and orchestra, with the harpsichord once again functioning as a powerful solo instrument, just as it did in Brandenburg Concerto No. 5, which employed the same combination of instruments. But that's one of relatively few points of contact that the triple concerto has with the presumably earlier Brandenburg Concerto, because BWV 1044 was put together for performance most likely as part of Bach's duties with the Leipzig Collegium Musicum. Bach's involvement with the Collegium Musicum, which had been instituted by his predecessor Telemann, constitutes a fascinating chapter in Bach's story, one which we're not really going to do justice to here, but let me just suggest that it was part of his responsibility which, despite his incredibly busy schedule, he not only took seriously, but even seemed to have enjoyed. I referred a minute ago to the triple concerto as having been put together, and there's no question that it was. The outer movements were taken from an earlier work for keyboard, the Prelude and Fugue in A minor, BWV 894, and the middle movement from a trio sonata for organ, BWV 527. This shouldn't really surprise us. Bach is famous for his repurposing of musical ideas or even entire movements, instrumental or choral vocal, usually with some rearranging or sometimes even more basic modifications to fit their new function, as is the case here. We've seen it before in some of the cantatas, and we'll see it again in some of the works to be discussed later in this series of podcasts, including some quite famous works such as the B minor Mass and the so-called Christmas Oratorio. Of course, one perfectly reasonable way to approach a repurposed work such as the Triple Concerto is to go through and point out ways in which the new version deviates from the old version, or versions in this case. We're going to do a little bit of that, but first we have to consider the more general question of how a prelude and fugue for keyboard could possibly translate into two-thirds of a concerto for orchestra and three soloists. First of all, it should be noted that the Prelude and Fugue in question is one of those works for keyboard that is considered to have borrowed some elements of the concerto style right from the beginning, somewhat like the considerably more famous and undeniably more successful Italian concerto for keyboard, BWV 971. But, as we'll see, those concerto-like elements found in BWV 894 are neither so strong nor so obvious as in the Italian concerto. So, let's take a closer look at at least the opening of the prelude movement. As you heard, the movement begins with a reasonably bold announcement of the sort of theme that might serve as a ritornello theme in a concerto. It begins with a single line in the right hand, but quickly moves to a thicker, block-like texture in the right hand, while the left hand imitates the opening mode of half a bar later. Harmonically, it outlines two quick alternations of tonic and dominant chords, all in the first bar. But the opening mode of clearly the most distinctive idea within the ritonello obviously goes by very quickly, and before we know it, we're in the midst of a series of initially undulating triplet lines that go on for some time, although new triplet patterns do emerge within the flow. Perhaps we can think of these long triplet-based excursions as equivalent to a solo section, but we would at some point fairly soon expect a return of the ritornello theme, brief though it may be, or something recognizably like it. 
and in fact the opening motive does recur several times, but usually rather stealthily, and usually more in the context of what one might more reasonably describe as a solo section, as opposed to a more full-blown restatement of the ritonello theme. That reoccurs only as the piece draws to a close. So, given the musical flow I've just described, you would expect Bach to make some significant changes as he arranges the piece as the first movement of a concerto for three soloists in orchestra. Let's take a look at what he does. The concerto begins with a statement of the ritonello theme, with the whole orchestra, minus the solo flute, doing the honors. But there are changes made almost from the beginning. The opening motive, that first half measure, is immediately expanded upward and, at its high point, introduces 16th note triplets, which take the line back to the tonic note. But we do not immediately move on to a series of undulating triplets, as in the prelude. Instead, we move up an octave and repeat a variant of the same motive again, before then heading on to the undulating triplets. So, in other words, the opening ritonello motive, the head motive, so to speak, is presented twice, probably making a stronger imprint on the air than was the case in the original version for keyboard. Although this first motive disappears after just two bars, the texture remains thick for the first eight measures, introducing a few new motives along the way, including a dotted rhythm that becomes more important later. So, when the cadence in A minor is achieved, we feel like we've heard a significant ritonello, something that wasn't the case in the prelude version. At that point, predictably, the texture thins out considerably, putting more emphasis on the solo instruments, initially the harpsichord, which gives us the opening motive, and then later the solo violin and flute, which share fragments of the triplet figure. When the other strings are added from time to time for rhythmic emphasis, they often make use of pizzicato, somewhat unusual for Bach, to guarantee that their contributions don't override the soloists. After nine bars of shared soloistic activity, we modulate to C major and get something of a ritonello, but it's one in which the soloists participate actively and which emphasizes the dotted rhythm figures mentioned earlier. We'll hear the opening, including the ritonello and the first solo section. You'll notice that the flute and solo violin tend to break down the flow of triplets into individual segments, trading them back and forth, and this gives this initial solo section a more distinctive character than the corresponding section in the prelude. From this point on, the music modulates to various tonal centers and presents a series of solo sections in which the harpsichord once again dominates and ritonellos. But like its model, the ritonellos don't necessarily feature that strong initial motive that opened the movement. It's not that that motive is completely absent. If nothing else, the soloists quote it from time to time. And when we return to the key of A minor, two-thirds through the piece, the initial ritonello motive comes with it. 
but increasingly it's all about the solo harpsichord, which ends up dominating even more than in the fifth Brandenburg concerto with which this one is so often compared. Of course, it almost always goes without saying as we approach the closing measures, the ritornella will be repeated in the tonic key pretty close to the original form. So, has Bach been successful in his attempt to turn the A minor prelude into a full-fledged concerto movement? Historically speaking, the jury has been mixed as to the success of this movement, but at least it is seen as a worthy attempt. The slow movement, based on the trio sonata for organ referenced earlier, is unlike any we've looked at so far. The instrumentation is reduced to the three soloists, although that in itself is not so remarkable, and the key has been transposed from F major in the original to C major. It's not unusual for pieces or movements to be transposed a bit lower to better fit the range of Bach's harpsichord, but this is a more dramatic change than is typical. Let me first say a few words about the original. The title of Trio Sonata for Organ seems a bit unusual since we associate trio sonatas with two melody instruments, usually violins, interweaving over a continual part. Bach uses two manuals of the organ and the pedal to get the same effect, three independent parts, and so naturally appropriates the label. In the slow movement for the concerto, we get the potential of having four parts, flute, violin, and both hands of the harpsichord, but in fact Bach usually stays close to the three-part arrangement of the original, the violin providing minimal pizzicato accompaniment in places and coming in with significant melodic material mostly only on the section repeats and then taking over the top line of the harpsichord's part. But more striking than any of this is the movement's stylistic identity. Commentators are widely agreed that this movement is in the so-called Still Galant, or simply Galant style. The Galant style begins to emerge in the 1730s and, in many respects, seems to be a reaction against the style that Bach himself represented to most people. The older contrapuntal tradition, with its fugues, its long, relatively complex melody lines, its rapidly fluctuating and, at least in the hands of Bach, intricate harmonies. The fact that this Galant style was rapidly increasing in its general acceptance is seen by the fact that two of Bach's sons, Carl Philipp Emanuel and Johann Christian, each assumed this new style as they matured, although each took it in a rather different direction. But all of this is not to suggest that Bach was completely hostile to the new emerging style, and in fact he can be heard dabbling in at least some aspects of it in a number of works, ranging from the popular style of cantatas, such as the Peasant Cantata and Coffee Cantata, to the more serious works such as the B minor Mass, as well as purely instrumental works like some of his suites for keyboard, the musical offering, and of course the trio sonata for organ in question. What about this movement puts it in the Galant category, or at least suggests the influence of the Galant style? Let's hear the opening of it.
the short and comparatively flimsy phrases, the timbre, the delicacy of texture with the right hand of the harpsichord floating considerably above the left-hand accompaniment in many places, the violin pizzicato, the lack of consistent close-knit counterpoint, the abundant or ornamentation, the sometimes sentimental or perhaps cloying use of chromaticism and non-harmonic tones, all of these things insinuate the gallant style. That is not to say that the movement doesn't exhibit a certain grace or charm. It most certainly does. It's only to suggest that it's far from a conventional slow movement for a Bach concerto. After this somewhat gallant-styled slow movement, the finale back in A minor comes almost as a shock. The model for this movement is, as mentioned earlier, the fugue from BWV 894, and the opening ritonello, a rather austere one, makes it clear from the beginning that this will be serious and, to some extent, old-fashioned contrapuntal exercise. The theme in the viola marked a la breve is notable for its initial ascending minor sixth followed by descending movement and is accompanied by two lines, both of which act as countersubjects, one in the first orchestral violins that is characterized by multiple octave leaps and the second in the second violin and in the harpsichord accompaniment notable for its chain of dissonant suspensions. The two soloists, the flute and solo violin, join in in the fifth measure with the imitation of a fifth, lifting us temporarily to the key of E minor. The subject is then broken up and distributed briefly through the texture until the subject reappears in A minor, leading quickly to an emphatic cadence and the beginning of the solo section, featuring the harpsichord, of course, which, against the familiar suspensions in the right hand, spins out mostly scale-based and arpeggio-based triplet patterns, first in the left hand and then also in the right, following the harmonic structure of the fugue subject. In the second ritonella, which appears after 12 bars of solo activity in the harpsichord, the fugue theme reappears in E minor along with its two pseudo-counter-subjects, but this time it's interrupted by the harpsichord, which insists on changing the key to D minor. Flute and solo violin attempt to reassert the fugue theme during this modulation, but the harpsichord once again insists on its triplet-based solo activity, and soon the orchestral strings are reduced to quiet little pizzicato plucks in support. Let's hear the beginning of the movement. As the harpsichord continues its barrage, we hear glimmers of the fugue theme, and especially the octave-jumping counter-subject from the flute, solo violin, and orchestral strings. But the harpsichord cannot be turned away from its task, and its soloistic activity becomes more elaborate and virtuosic. Flute and violin do manage to come up with some interesting little counter-melodies, sometimes in canon, to play off against the busy harpsichord, but there's no question about who's dominating the action. 
The low strings eventually lose patience and attempt to start up the fugue again, but soon surrender the effort and recontinue in much the same way until the orchestra and soloists begin to assert themselves with a series of aggressive quarter note chords, the orchestral strings on the beat and the soloists on the offbeat. But this intrusion, about which I'll say more in a minute, does not particularly subdue the soloist, who simply thickens its texture a bit and introduces a new dotted rhythmic figure to guarantee its continuing featured status. When we eventually arrive at the key of C major, subject and countersubjects do make their presence felt, as the right hand of the harpsichord takes a bit of a respite, but after 24 bars, the harpsichord returns to the offensive, accompanied gently by the first four notes of the fugue theme. As we proceed, Bach keeps us alert from time to time with passages of diminished chords, sometimes within a lyrical flow, other times in short staccato bursts. But at times, we're lulled with gentle, almost sentimental chromaticism that, for an instant anyway, evokes the middle movement. The harpsichord soloist continues to drive onward, accompanied by gentle insinuations of the fugue subject, until, somewhat abruptly, everything stops. We get a fermata, and then a bona fide cadenza for solo harpsichord. To be sure, the long solo passages in the fifth Brandenburg certainly have a cadenza-like feel about them, but in this case, there's no ambiguity whatsoever. We get a 13-bar section, marked cadenza, most of it over a dominant pedal, another fermata, a rhythmically free flourish by the solo harpsichord, and then... With an indication of tempo primo, the fugue theme is reintroduced, sounding even more archaic and austere this time, after the free-floating cadenza, and it follows through much like its initial appearance. How exactly does this movement fit in with the first two? The fact that the ritornello is based on a fugue would seem to give it a certain amount of normalcy, since fugal finales are far from rare in Bach concertos. But this particular fugue has very little in common with some of the fugal finales we've observed up to this point. This is no gigue. There is nothing dance-like about this finale. In no way could it be said to represent a vivacious conclusion. In fact, many commentators have referenced the old-fashioned quality of the theme and the way it is handled, many of them tying it to the Stil Antico, a purposely archaic style written in emulation, to some degree, of Renaissance counterpoint. In reference to this, the excellent pianist Angela Hewitt has suggested that the rather aggressive accident intrusions I referred to earlier, which she refers to as, quote, outbursts of quite ferocious chords from the orchestra, end quote, seem, in her words, to be like a condemnation of sinners. Is that kind of religious symbolism possible in an instrumental work? Of course it's possible, more so for Bach than for most composers. Such a supposition is utterly unprovable, of course, but it is tempting to come up with some sort of explanation, metaphysical or not, as to why this rather strange-sounding finale is so different from most concerto finales, as well as from the somewhat unusual slow movement, and how it all fits together with the first, more conventional opening movement. So, in the end, we are left with a concerto which features some skillfully negotiated and genuinely likable features, and yet one that remains problematic for many of even the most ardent Bach lovers. We turn now to Bach's concerto for harpsichord and orchestra in F minor BWV 1056. We know that Bach's harpsichord concertos, seven of them for one harpsichord, three for two harpsichords, two for three harpsichords, and one for four harpsichords, his famous arrangement of Vivaldi's Concerto for Four Violins and Orchestra, 
We know they tend to be based on earlier works, for example, the violin concertos in A minor, in E major, and the double concerto in D minor, as well as others now lost. In this case, Bach's harpsichord concerto in F minor, we have another repurposed work, but one in which Bach borrows in the outer movements, presumably from an earlier lost violin concerto, and in the slow movement from a lost oboe concerto. But we're naturally going to start with the first movement in F minor in 2-4 time. With no tempo indication, it's usually played at a typical allegro pace or perhaps a bit slower. It begins conventionally enough by outlining the tonic triad and constantly returning to the tonic note on accented beat for the first three bars. In fact, bars two and three are merely ornamented variants of the first bar, so the theme has to be considered a bit more static than most of Bach's concerto themes. But there are some reasonably distinctive elements, the short, long, short rhythmic pattern, its emphasis on the leading tone, and the prominence of chromatically altered lower and upper neighbor tones probably being the most notable. Here's a simplified example, devoid of supporting harmonic parts, but including the continuo bass line, played also by the left hand of the harpsichord, because its distinctive patterns play an important role later on. As you heard, the first four bars are repeated, starting on the fourth scale degree, and the initial statement of the ritornello theme comes to a close on dominant. After that, it is spun out by the whole ensemble a bit longer before the solo section begins. Not surprisingly, the initial solo section features the harpsichord, and the 16th note patterns have been changed to 16th note triplets, thus picking up the rhythmic momentum a bit. The solos proceeds with some light accompaniment from the rest of the orchestra, occasionally making reference to the ritornello theme, or at least its rhythmic flow, and the distinctive left-hand motive that you heard a minute ago is also heard from time to time. As the movement continues, we encounter the expected returns of the ritornello in various keys, but usually abbreviated, surrendering quickly to the busy harpsichord lines, which venture rather far afield from the main elements of the ritornello theme, often against a rather simple accompaniment, sometimes merely sustained chords from the rest of the orchestra. About two-thirds through the movement, we do get a clear and reasonably well-developed recurrence of the ritornello theme, initially in B-flat minor, but moving quickly to A-flat. A clever modulation takes us back to F minor, where the harpsichord temporarily puts aside its triplet-based ramblings and takes on an abbreviated version of the ritornello theme. But at no point do we get a full return of the complete ritornello theme, even the final measures leading up to the concluding cadence. Even that final ritornello is incomplete and broken up by solo interjections from the harpsichord. We'll hear the opening ritornello with the harpsichord soloist echoing the last bar of each orchestral phrase, and then on into the first solo section.
There's little question that the slow movement of this concerto represents its high point. The movement was also used as the introductory symphonia to Cantata BWV 156, titled, in English translation and rather grimly, I Stand with One Foot in the Grave, whose text speaks of relying only on the mercy of the Savior. We'll hear the beginning of that symphonia. In this version, the oboe takes the opening melody with minimal support, and it's impeccably suited to do so, not surprisingly since so many scholars assume that this movement started life in an oboe concerto, no longer extant. Here, in comparison, is the opening of the slow movement of the F minor concerto. transposed from F major to A flat major and carried by the harpsichord, the melody is, of course, much more extensively ornamented than in the cantata symphonia. It's possible that Bach was appropriating the lighter French Rococo style here, but it's also reasonable to believe that Bach was using the ornamentation as a way of filling in spaces and emulating a sustained lyrical flow with an instrument that features a very rapid decay of sonority, in direct contrast to the oboe, which can sustain and swell a lyrical line every bit as naturally as the human voice. As far as the melody itself is concerned, the first two and a half bars of this wonderfully lyrical theme were borrowed from the slow movement of a concerto by Telemann, Bach's associate and friend, and it's often been suggested that this borrowing may have been intended as a sort of salute to his colleague. One reason Bach may have been drawn to the theme is the fact, which you may have noticed, that it's built over a descending bass line, like many of the composer's most memorable melodies. At any rate, it's developed brilliantly over the course of the entire movement, both melodically and harmonically. Does it sound somehow more natural in the version for oboe? Perhaps, 
but it's also very convincing in this version, even if, for brief passages, the melody almost seems to sink under the weight of the extensive ornamentation. The third movement, F minor in 3-8 time, is marked presto and speeds by quickly. The Ritonello, just the first eight bars of it, has three ideas, not really motives per se, that I want to point out. The first bar begins by dashing up an F minor scale in 16th notes. We'll call this idea Ritonello 1. The second bar is just an ascending triad in 8th notes, starting on the 3rd scale degree, but it lands on a raised leading tone, which is tied across the bar. This is more ear-catching than it sounds, and becomes one of the central elements unifying the movement. We'll call it Ritonello 2. The third idea is the echo effect that comes in at the end of the first eight-bar section, when the first violin punctuates the end of the phrase with a falling fifth, which is immediately echoed quietly an octave lower. We'll call this Ritornello 3. Let's hear a simplified version of the first eight bars of the Ritornello. The second half of the opening Ritornello, the last eight bars, reverses the trend of mostly ascending figures with descending patterns in the first four bars that nevertheless hold on to the tie-across-the-bar syncopation, in other words, Ritonello II, heard earlier, and a variant of the gentle echo effect which closed off the first eight bars also closes off the second. Here's a simplified example showing the second eight bars of the Ritonello. Ideas from the second eight bars, and a couple of new ones, are then spun out for an additional eight bars, which takes us to a convincing cadence on F minor and the first solo section. The harpsichord solo begins with a new idea, which is immediately imitated by the first violins. We'll call it Solo 1, and here's a simplified example of it. Its most distinctive feature is probably the initial descending perfect fourth in the first bar and the ascending perfect fifth in the second. Does this idea show up in later solo sections? Not in all of them by any means, but neither does it completely disappear. At one point, after a modulation to C minor has been effected, the idea returns in the harpsichord and is duly imitated by the first violin. Still, it would be misleading to suggest that this rather distinctive idea plays a major role from that point on. There are other distinctive keyboard-type figures that are at least as important as we proceed through the movement. Here's a slowed-down example of one of them, based on consecutive trills, which occurs at the end of a clever modulation to C minor. We'll call this solo two. It's accompanied by arpeggios in the strings that double the left hand, which my example doesn't show. And, of course, we hear the sort of typical figuration patterns that few of Bach's works for keyboard can completely avoid, like this one with the implied descending line, which we'll call Solo 3. The echo motive that we referred to earlier as Ritonello 3 also has a role to play as the movement hurries on, often heard in pizzicato from the strings. And eventually, after a series of solo sections and usually abbreviated ritonellos in various keys, we hear, this time, a complete ritonello as we head to the final measures of the movement. 
Okay, let's hear now, in an actual performance, the opening ritonello and into the first solo section of this lively finale. now to the last concerto we're going to consider, the Concerto in C Major for Two Harpsichords and Strings, BWV 1061. Unlike most of Bach's harpsichord concertos, this is an original work, not a transcription or arrangement of an earlier violin or oboe concerto, and probably originally written for Bach's domestic circle. He obviously had some very talented performers under his own roof at his disposal. Originally written for the two harpsichords alone with string accompaniments added for performance by the Collegium Musicum. It's that second version we're going to be concerned with for this episode. The first movement, C major in common time, no tempo indication, begins with a very simple thematic statement in the first bar, presented primarily in the first harpsichord and first violins. It's basically an embellished plagal cadence, tonic, subdominant tonic, or 1-4-1, one, with the melodic movement starting on the third scale degree and moving up by step to the fifth, with a trilled fourth scale degree on the way up. We'll call this Ritonello 1. After a brief pause filled in by an arpeggio in the second harpsichord, the next idea is presented, a figuration pattern in sixteenth notes from the first harpsichord, which, stripped of its ornamentation, basically marches right back down the scale. We'll call this Ritonello 2. This idea is then picked up in the second harpsichord, which continues the march back down to the tonic. As is frequently the case, this is easier to hear than to describe. After cadencing on dominant after just four bars, we hear what we perceive as the first solo section, where both harpsichords come out with all fingers blazing in a pattern of mostly sixteenth notes. This might be heard as a variant of the Ritronello II motive that we just heard, but we're going to call it Solo One. It's bandied back and forth between the harpsichord soloists and repeated on different pitch levels. Here's a simplified example. While the figures that Bach developed so cleverly in his solo section up to this point may not be completely new, he soon introduces an idea which is. The strings, which have been accompanying the harpsichords lightly, now completely drop out, and the first harpsichord, soon to be echoed by the second, introduces this idea which we're going to call solo two. The strings are not completely forgotten in all of this, coming in to punctuate the cadence with Ritonello I before the second harpsichord takes over from the first, but realistically they don't play a particularly important role. 
After both harpsichords have had their fun spinning out solo two, they both join together to exploit Ritonella one, and for a while we roam imaginatively, often touching quickly on various tonal centers before settling down on G major. There, figuration patterns, often those with implied lines budding out from within, dominate the action for a bit until solo two returns to do some modulating of its own. Then the texture slims down considerably as first harpsichord one and then harpsichord two each take a solo based on solo two mixed in with various figuration patterns. This back and forth is basically the story of the movement. The two harpsichords compete furiously for attention, various motives pop up and become submerged, and then when we expect a secure and confident cadence, we get instead an abrupt stop in the action, an unexpected change in tempo to adagio, and, briefly, a glimpse at a somewhat anguished C minor flourish before finally closing on a fermata on C major, presumably preparing us for the slow movement to come. Of course, isolating and identifying themes and motives, as we've done here, never tells the whole story about a piece or a movement, and that is particularly true here. The two main themes are not particularly remarkable, and long passages go by without any significant reference to either. But the interplay between the soloists is nonetheless dazzling because of the rhythmic energy and, at times, the striking, although completely logical, chord progressions. We'll hear the opening and a bit into the first solo section. Only the two harpsichords participate in the second movement in A minor in marked Adagio Avero Largo. It begins with an expressive phrase in the right hand of harpsichord one that begins by leaping up passionately before undulating back down the scale. The initial motive is loosely imitated in the left hand and three bars later, the entire theme is given a proper imitation by the second harpsichord. Here's an example of the theme and its imitation. You might notice that the cadential phrase that closes out the theme bears a distinctive resemblance to the opening motive of the first movement. Overlapping with the end of this imitation is the germ of a new idea in the right hand of the first harpsichord, which features two suspensions in the course of one measure. There's nothing terribly unique about it at first, and it disappears quickly, but it plays a more important role later on. 
Here's an example of it, not of its first occurrence, but as it appears later on in the movement. But for the most part, it's the first theme, adorned with extensive embellishments, that dominates. It returns in a wide variety of contexts, sometimes appearing first in harpsichord one, sometimes harpsichord two. But, important as it is, it sometimes seems to become all but lost in the busy textures, even at a slow tempo, particularly as the trills in multiple parts seem to compile. The fugal finale begins with the right hand of harpsichord one presenting a four-barred fugal subject, which starts out with a distinctive rhythmic pattern but soon passes to a more generic flow of 16th notes and 8th notes played by the left hand. As the fugal answer comes in a fifth higher in the right hand, the left hand continues with an interesting countersubject with some rather distinctive elements, including some large leaps and 8th notes in its second bar. After the subject and its initial imitation at the fifth is completed, we pass immediately to an eight-measure contrasting episode, initially a series of alternating arpeggio figures, but eventually a more complex contrapuntal flow into which motives from both the subject and countersubject poke their noses. We'll hear a performance of the first 16 bars, including the fugal subject, its imitation, and the first contrasting episode. Later in my excerpt, you heard the subject return, now in G major, in the left hand of harpsichord two, but at this point, it's in competition from some very busy counterpoint from harpsichord one, which includes references to the countersubject as well as some new motives. The subject is again imitated at the fifth by harpsichord two, a measure letter this time, against a variant of the original countersubject, but the first harpsichord remains very busy all the way through this, introducing some of its own new ideas along the way. After another contrasting episode, we return to C major and see the first signs of life from the accompanying strings, with the first violins coming in to double the harpsichord's right hand as we reintroduce the subject. The second violins then join in with the invitation of a fifth, although again, this is all within the context of an otherwise very busy texture. When this new point of imitation concludes, we pass to a briefer episode, only four bars in length, in which the violins continue to double both hands of harpsichord one, while harpsichord two adds some new ideas of its own. At this point, the more or less traditional pattern has been established, but there are some small surprises. The subject returns in C major with the lower strings now jumping to double the fugue subject, but this time we're cut off before any imitation can begin, and we move on to another episode, in which harpsichord one launches a solo passage where it introduces some more chromatic elements and eventually changes keys. 
After the busyness, perhaps even the clutter of the previous section, this all sounds remarkably exposed and allows us to appreciate the chromatic adventures more keenly. Soon the second harpsichord joins in, usually in alternation with the first, and the texture becomes more involved. Still, it's almost a shock when all the strings enter with the fugue subject, forte, in E minor, and we stay in this new tonal area for a while before moving to A minor, where the drama plays out once again, this time with some actual imitation taking place. Using the first bar of the subject as its driving force, Bach slides into D minor, and the harpsichords are once again left to their own devices. Having gone this far through the circle of fifths, Bach naturally takes us a step farther and brings us to G major and reintroduces the subject with light accompaniment from the strings. But, predictably, it's just a stop-off point, because Bach is clearly heading back to the home tonic of C major for the big finish, which he affects with an increase in string activity, a final reference to the fugue subject, driving sixteenth notes from the harpsichord, and the final cadence. Here's the conclusion of Movement 3. Is this Bach's most sparkling fugal finale? No, it's not. But the textural density is impressive, and there's so much going on as the movement proceeds. It's fascinating to watch how many lines Bach can juggle at the same time without having them disintegrate into an impenetrable mass. And this, of course, is only a concerto for two harpsichords, those for three and four represent in some ways even more remarkable sleights of hand. So, Bach's concertos for harpsichord may not all have the thematic distinctiveness of the Brandenburgs or the weight and inventiveness of the other concertos we've looked at in previous episodes, but they are certainly worth investigating. Okay, that's it for this episode. We're going to temporarily step away from Bach's instrumental music and turn our attention to Bach's B minor mass in the next episode. 